it's my job to, to try to explain, first of all, what is the Torah and how is this Torah actually then can be considered as a law for Christians. Now, this is it's a very difficult topic because biblical law is very controversial, but I will try my best. The Torah, first of all, I think, is also no, which is also known as the Pentateuch, is a body of ritual, civil, criminal, and international law that guides the people of Israel in relationships, not only with God and with the nations, but also with each other. But the Torah is not just law. There is also a larger narrative found within the Torah, moving from the creation stories into the then to Exodus and deliverance, and then uh, finally to when the people enter the promised land. Accordingly, many try to divide these two as if they have nothing to do with, with each other. And many times what happens is we tend to isolate the 16, the 613 laws, which are found sprinkled throughout the Torah. And I will show that this is a wrong way to tackle this question. Understanding biblical law is difficult because it is such a controversial subject. We often fall into the trap, in fact, in saying that the law of God is divided or separate from the good news of Jesus Christ, right? Often we, we hear phrases like, now that Jesus Christ has come, we have been freed by the bondage of the law of Moses, as if the law of Moses was something negative. And yet, while there are many things which, we, which are intention and perhaps are even updated by Jesus Christ, not everything is different. There is much which is in common between what the Old Testament says and what the New Testament says. And for, for much of scholarship, there has been this idea to divide. However, we now are looking at ways to see how they work together, how there is unity between the two. Jesus himself says, I have not come to annul the law, but to bring it to fulfillment. Therefore, we must find a better way to understand biblical law. And in fact, while there is some tension, there is much shared between Jews and Christians. And especially in light of the fact that both much of Jewish scriptures and also Christian scriptures were formulated within the same milieu of Second Temple Judaism. At the heart of Second Temple Judaism, of course, is the relationship with the Creator God, Yahweh, and Israel, its chosen, His chosen people. And this relationship is centered around the Torah and Israel's adherence to it. And this is something, of course, which is particularly urged in the Shema and also the Decalogue. It is not surprising then that the Torah became was considered as the basis of Jewish identity as the people of God and also presented itself as the expression of God's will. It makes sense then that the other two parts of the Jewish Bible, the Nevi'im and the Ketibim, the prophets and the other writings, then acts as a sort of rereading of the Torah in light of the new contemporary situation, historical setting that the people of God found themselves in. The New Testament was not ignorant of this. The New Testament itself can be considered to be a rereading of the entire Old Testament corpus 
grounded in how Jesus sheds light on what God continues to will for his people and how he must and how his people must continue to obey this will. In front of all this, how is the Torah for Christians? What I hope to show today is by looking at biblical law in both its Old Testament and New Testament context, that scriptures primarily concern itself with a particular identity as people of God and the specific lifestyle that this implies. If this is so, then, then the law's aim, final aim for Christians is the identity forming covenant commitment with Jesus Christ embodied in the call to holiness. How do I hope to show this? First, I need to explain what biblical law is. And we will see this by looking particularly at a new approach in recent scholarship through the common law approach. And this will directly affect how biblical law actually works. In fact, I will claim that it is impossible to fully appreciate what biblical law is without looking at the larger framework of Israel's story. This will lead me then to discuss what is the call to holiness as the final aim of biblical law itself. And then I finally, I will turn to the New Testament to explain not only how Jesus is considered to be the telos of, of, of the law, but also to be the authentic interpreter of the legal deposit of Israel. The first question, how is biblical law, law? While the Decalogue and the, while the Decalogue stands out as the most important legal text, most of the 613 laws are found in four major, what we call biblical codes, which is often considered to be the covenant code, the Deuteronomic code, the priestly code, and the holiness code. The traditional view was that this complex forms the basis of a fully functioning prescriptive legal system where supreme authority rests on the autonomous and exhaustive written word of the law codes, codes themselves. In other words, you just read the laws and you say, ah, this is the law. And therefore, this is what we would call the statutory form of law, in which it's based upon a law, a series of law, which is emanated by a sovereign, and that the written law is all there is. However, in more recently, this approach to biblical law has been brought into question. Scholars rightly stated to ask if our modern day bias about the law was not skewing how we were interpreting biblical law, a system of law that came into being much, much earlier than mid 19th century when the statutory approach became popular. For example, scholars started to question the idea that the Deuteronomic Code sought to conceal the covenant code in order to supersede its authority and present itself as the sole authority of divine law. And in fact, nowhere do we find in scriptures that the covenant code is canceled, is concealed. It's there. And in fact, what happens is, is that often when we look at the different ways the, the codes work, they find to be, they seem to be in contradiction to, with one another. A classical example would be the law concerning slaves, in which in Exodus 21, you find on the one hand, if, if a person goes into, into slavery, then no matter what happens during those seven years, 
right? In, in which he might he might have a wife, he might get children, he might have some property, right? And the, everything which the person gained in that time, he he has to abandon, he has to leave behind. If one looks at the same law concerning slaves in Deuteronomy, one finds that the, the, the author of Deuteronomy tells us not only should you, should the person remain, have, keep what he's gotten during that time, but also you give him more. Right? And so in this way, it seems as if there's a contradiction because both laws are active and both laws both codes seem to be um, present and active. Due to this puzzling situation, scholars started to look more closely at the legal systems which were functioning in the ancient Near East among Israel's neighbors. And this line of thought has proved beneficial since it highlighted that many common points were witnesses throughout the ancient Near East. Indeed, such a comparative approach allowed us to appreciate that biblical law should not be understood through the statutory approach, but through the common law approach. The common law approach is different because it forms a system of reasoning in which you, you don't, you cannot point to the law, but rather there is a legal deposit. There is a reservoir of customs and uh, um, uh, customs and ideas that judges use to form judgments. And they would make use of this, of, of, this, of this reservoir of known customs and accepted norms. Therefore, biblical law would be the basis of predecent and not legislation. Turning back to the, to the, the, to the law about slaves, it seems, it would seem therefore that the Deuteronomy code it revises the covenant code, but as an updating of the reservoir of known customs. It does not conceal. It does not erase the covenant code, but it updates according to the new situation to the rereading of the situation of the people of God in that particular moment. Returning back to the law of slaves, it's understandable that, for instance, after six or seven years, a slave would make a new life for him or herself, and the new situation would recreate the need for revision of the previous law, a law that would, however, remain a part of the repertoire of common law. Therefore, no one could point to the law, as the system of reasonings are not just found in the text but behind the text. And a good example of this is one of the, the, one of the more better known examples of the application of biblical law is when Solomon, in, 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 as judge, has to judge between the two prostitutes, right? Whose child does this belong to, right? And of course, he doesn't go and he doesn't cite any, any law there. He doesn't say, according to law 5.3, Right? What he does, he takes a sword and says, let's cut it in two. And the, the basis, the reason this makes sense is that not, it's not within the text we understand, but we see it behind the text because Solomon understood that the mother of that child would live to the advantage of that child rather to her own advantage 
as the liar would. And therefore, what the text is getting at is understanding the essence of biblical law, which I will come to shortly, which is mainly love of God and love of neighbor. But in it, we see here a, a good example of how Solomon as a judge does not cite, does not point to any one law, but rather he using the, the, the reservoir of known customs in Israel, makes use of this reservoir in order to pass a judgment. By In the end, therefore, by seeing biblical law in this way, we can see the complementariness of the different codes as they were reread, reinterpreted, and reapplied to one another according to the changing circumstances of Israel's history. The heart of biblical law would then be the critical preservation, retrieval, and correction of a normative political moral tradition that is essential in the formation of identity, since this law would reflect the collective conscience of the people. In other words, biblical law, based on common values and a common story, explains who Israel is and not what Israel simply does. Therefore, it's fundamental that we look to the Torah meta-narrative, that is this narrative which explains how the unwritten law was woven into the fabric of society and enunciated in the course of judicial deliberation. Now, of course, I don't have time to go through the entire narration of Israel, but I think a very particular text will help us to understand. And this text is Exodus 19, 46, which reads, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. Here we see that the covenant indicates, on the one hand, omnipotent creator God, and on the other hand, that Israel recognizes God's supreme authority to govern. And all of this is ratified in a binding commitment in order that right covenantal relations are established. As this is the case, the collective conscience of Israel concerns the long story of creation, deliverance, and covenant, wherein deliverance from bondage serves the creational goal by enabling Israel to live the life it was created to live. This implies that while human judges were appointed to faithfully interpret and apply the law, God remains the supreme judge as well as lawgiver, as he is the creator and caregiver of the cosmos and of his chosen fruit. This is the hermeneutic which guides all of Israel's thoughts words, and behaviors with God, with nations, and amongst themselves. But if this is the case, what is the final aim of biblical law? And what is the, to understand this, we have to ask, what is the final aim of Israel's story? If election and covenant are aimed at helping Israel to live the life it was created to live, it stands to reason that the final aim of the law is to bring about communion with the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth. Then we turn to holiness, because in reality, this is exactly what Exodus 19, 46 states, in that Israel must be cut off. The word holy 
means many things. It can mean for God, it can mean to be unchanging and wholly different, not subject to death or decay, life itself. But for Israel, what it really means is to be separate, to be cut off, to be separate for God and not from God. To be holy, therefore, means to belong to God in a particular way, living faithfully according to particular commandments. However, this proved harder than it might seem. And it is highly indicative that shortly after Exodus 20, when the Decalogue is given, we find Exodus 32, that chapter which covers the adoration of the golden calf, in which in verse 8, God calls Israel stiff-necked. Right? Stiff-necked. In which it's like almost as if um, since Israel is worshipping a bull, a golden calf, they become like a bull in need of a tether or a yoke to keep them on the straight path. So that the law, therefore, to keep its functions to keep Israel holy, not so that it helps them to live the path, but that they don't forget it. It becomes a tether that every time Israel goes too far to the left or for too far to the right, the law snaps them back into place and keeps them under God. And this is why the law does not in any way annul the promise. And it doesn't affect the promise because it was never intended to remove or to cancel or to change the relationship between God, the creator, and Israel, its chosen, his chosen fruit. Because the law was never intended for to justify. It was always intended to keep as a ways and means to keep Israel holy, to keep them under God. The problem is, is that holy as it may be, as it, 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 it didn't really work. And that we find in the Old Testament, a, the tragic paradox, right? In which Israel, in order to live the life it was created to live, is supposed to be holy. And it wants to be holy, but it seems it cannot on its own. However, even though that this happens, the Old Testament and the New Testament does not lose hope. And in fact, many of the messianic expectations comes to pass in the life of Jesus. Now, this is a very abridged form of an article I written and in, in, in which was published in Novad Veteran. So I'm going to have to skip over a whole section, which I would like to talk about, which is the problem of the theology of sacrifices. I'm unable to because I only have nine minutes left. So, but in the, the, what's important for us today here is that the coming of Jesus functioning within the common law tradition is no way cancels the Old Testament. And therefore, it is completely wrong to, to put Jesus on the one hand and the bondage of the law of Moses on the other hand. Because in reality, what Jesus does is updates the law according now to the new situation, historical situation that the people of God find themselves in. And that therefore everything gets updated. We find the problem, we find the temple, we find the sacrifices, but also we find how new Israel looks at itself. However, the one thing that remains is the call to holiness. That does not change. 
A lot of things are updated, but the final aim, why did Jesus come around? Jesus came around in order to put the right covenantal relations right. And of course, here we find Paul, who in Romans talks about how the, the and, and Galatians, how the law cannot justify, because it was never intended to justify. It was the cross of Christ which made right covenantal relations right, right? And so the law was never there. So then what is the law? Paul uses another expression, which is similar, but it's churning the same idea as in the Old Testament. Rather than the idea of yoke, Paul uses the idea of paidegegos, which the paidegegos was a person in, in the household of, an, of, a, of a rich aristocrat, in which often was a slave, it could be a rich man, it could be a free man, but whose role was to restrict was to discipline the children until they came of age. And the idea is, is that the Paidegegos, when he, the child comes of age, living the life he was created to live, living a disciplined life, did he did not need any longer that yoke, that disciplinarian, that Paidegegos, because he could live the essence of the law on his own. And so what happens is, is that the coming of Jesus Christ then lifts the, the need for the law. Because now the tether which keeps us to God is no longer the law, but it is Jesus himself, the cross. However, Jesus still asks the same thing, right? In the end, Jesus still asks the same thing, love God and love neighbor. Because this is the essence of the will of the Lord. I think that... In the end, that Paul, that for Paul and for the New Testament, Christ is the telos of the law because Christ unveils, unveils the law's true sense, which in reality is all about reconciliation and union, since it is only through Christ that the law's final aim is achieved, so that everyone who believes in Christ may attain the status of being counted righteous. It is no wonder, therefore, that Paul also says his teachings uphold the law, which implies that what, the, what Paul is saying about the law reorientates his reader's focus back to the purpose of the law, to foster wholehearted devotion to God among people. And this focus is none other than a return to the Shema and the love of neighbor. When all is said and done, the common law approach allows us to see how Paul interprets the reservoir of the common law tradition of Israel in light of the coming of Christ. In this way, Paul sees no tension between the law's condition of obedience as its path to life and his conviction that salvation is to be found in the Christian gospel. The same requirement of righteousness underlines both. But since the law, holy that it is, was not able to keep Israel holy, God sent Jesus Christ as the way to make the pact right. This, of course, does not mean the same requirements of love of God and neighbor are annulled, because we have died to sin, to live for God in Christ Jesus. If we are right to see this, therefore, then we should see it elsewhere, in the Gospels, for instance. And we find it, for instance, most importantly, in the Sermon of the Mount, Right? In which first in the exordium, in the first 16 verses of the sermon, Jesus describes the identity of the, of the, of the Christian. You are the poor in spirit. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. 
this identity requires a lifestyle to sustain it, a lifestyle that is based on a higher righteousness and that is congruent with the law's fulfillment. What this higher righteousness is, is then explained and developed in the rest of the sermon, which is not only clarified that the six antitheses illustrate that righteous living is a matter of the heart and living in all-hearted union with God, but also the traditional Jewish practices of giving alms, prayer, and fasting are to be carried out with a sincere and simple heart focused on God alone. While much more can be said, I do think that what is said is indicative that Jesus was focused on the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. Ultimately, the sermon shows that righteousness, right covenantal relations, is always derived from a disposition of the heart, from right intention, from love. But within the history of salvation, within the history of the people of God. In this essay, in this short uh, presentation, we have seen that on the one hand, that Jesus Christ is now the embodiment of the will of the Lord and how the Christian is required to listen to his voice to understand what God wills for his people. However, on the other hand, what he wills is always the same, that humanity recognizes his place, purify its heart and submit to God. In other words, to become perfect and as God is perfect and holy as God is holy. This is the pattern of life that is congruent with God's norms for life and conduct and requires us to be simple and pure to Christ. In all of this, I hope that I persuaded you that the biblical law ultimate aim for Christians is the identity forming covenant commitment with Jesus embodied in the call to, to the life of holiness. And in the New Testament, this requires the Christian to recognize that everything depends how much one is rooted in Christ, for it is this rooting in Christ from which Christian action flows. Therefore, be holy and perfect as God is holy and perfect, for this is the essence of the law, a law which leads us to the cross, for it is the cross and the blood shed on it that keeps us all separated for God forevermore.